Uh, hello, Plastic Pills listeners. This is Victor. I'm with uh, Matt McManus and new to the podcast, Jordan DeJong, who is a PhD student at the University of Ottawa. We're here to talk about uh, a new book. Well, I guess it's not that new, right? It, it was recently translated into English about Nietzsche. It's called Nietzsche, the Aristocratic Rebel, Intellectual Biography and Critical Balance Sheet by Dominic Lacerdo. Um and Matt and Jordan just spent the last couple of weeks reading it. It's like a thousand pages. Um, I did not read it because I have better things to do with my time. <laughs> um, I have to write a dissertation. And yeah, I just did, I'm not going to spend a thousand uh, pages on Nietzsche right now. But I am here just to sort of moderate the discussion a little bit because, you know, both of these people are actually like two of my best friends. But one of the things about them is they're both extremely long winded, both of them. <laughs> And uh, I have to be here to rein them in, basically, uh, and make sure, uh, you know, pills sent me to rein them in because they're both long winded. So I got to make sure that the conversation keeps going and uh, things don't get out of control here and that it's actually listenable. So here we go. I don't know. Maybe one of you. Why don't you start? Tell me what the basic thesis of the book from what I read. I did read Matt. You have like a review. Maybe it's out. Maybe it's coming out soon. But like it sounds like it's sort of in the same vein as. Uh, Professor Ronald Beener at the University of Toronto's book, at least insofar as it's kind of painting Nietzsche to be a bit more, have more reactionary potential um, than maybe the more existentialist readings, the more egalitarian and sort of like post-structuralist engagements with Nietzsche would have you believe. Uh, So yeah, I I don't know. We could start there if one of you wants to jump in. To say a bit more reactionary potential is to very much understate. (laughs) Is it to understate? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but maybe um, but Matt, you go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is. It absolutely does invite comparisons to Beaner's book, also Malcolm Bull's book, uh, Anti Nietzsche, uh, Nancy Love's take. I mean, anyone who's concerned with the kind of political implications of Nietzsche's thought in the 21st century. Uh, except the thing is, as Victor mentioned, if Beaner's book is kind of like a really tasty appetizer, you know, you could think of like a fantastic, you know, charcuterie plate. This is like a fucking feast. In the sense that it's almost too much. Uh, like Victor mentioned, it's a thousand pages more, really, if you add the appendix, footnotes, bibliography, and all that stuff. Uh, and it's really the work of a lifetime of scholarship just dedicated to challenging uh, what Lacerda calls the hermeneutics of innocence, right? This belief that Nietzsche either isn't a very political thinker uh, and the philosophical germ of his thought can be extracted from the kind of variable political comments he makes. Uh, or if he is a political thinker, he's kind of a bohemian liberal committed to this idea of free spirits and joyful sciences uh, and kind of self-creation. That's kind of the reading that the existentialists give him, right? Like a lot exactly. of the time. Well, and like, what's his name? Kaufman, I think, is kind of like uh, notorious for being kind of like the the sort of like head in the English speaking world of like the hermeneutics of uh, innocence, would you say? Or Yeah, absolutely. So I just I distinguish three periods in the review, uh, which is coming out at some point with philosophy now, but not for a year because they're backlogged. Um, but long story short, there's kind of three periods to Nietzsche's scholarship that I trace in the review, and maybe we can start there, because uh, it really informs the kind of hermeneutics of innocence. That's the main thesis of the book, uh, where, you know, Lacerda points out that initially uh, Nietzsche was kind of unknown. So I guess there's really four periods. Uh, but then later in his life, he became actually quite famous, particularly in reactionary political circles um, in continental Europe, right? Uh, and you can think of his reception uh, for fascism, 
Uh, you can think of the reception by a lot of Nazi figures. Uh, and this led many people in the Anglo-American world, particularly Bertrand Russell, right, infamously, uh, to just dismiss him uh, as either a hack or a German nationalist or a militarist or a proto-Nazi. Uh, and then along comes the second interpretation by people like Kaufman, the existential interpretation. That's much more charitable, uh, and that points out that Nietzsche held many anti-Nazi views, uh, right? And that it's wrong to just kind of denigrate him uh, as a proto-fascist or a proto-Nazi, since a lot of his thought is vastly more interesting uh, and resists that kind of interpretation. Uh, and it's also true, right, that the ex actual existentialists, just to sort of set the historical stage, so like before, because Kaufman, I'm actually not certain what Kaufman's sort of like chronological time period is, but he's like had the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, well, absolutely. Okay, so, then, so, so before him, Certainly in the first half of the 20th century, there were, in fact, existentialists who, who were taking up Nietzsche. Like, right. I mean, Heidegger, it's arguable whether you'd include him, but like, weren't people like Sartre? And, no, and, for sure. Heidegger, well, Heidegger absolutely took up Nietzsche. Yeah, as, but, yeah. but it's arguable oh. whether you would include him in the in the sort of like bread and butter existentialists, oh, right? Oh, some oh, people I do, see. some people like, I mean, he was certainly an inspiration, right, 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 but he's not yeah. necessarily like in the same. He's not as closely linked, I think, as the other existential phenomenologists. Like, uh, and they all, I think, draw on Nietzsche, right? And all of them have sort of egalitarian political visions. So yeah, I don't know. Absolutely. So that there was this kind of stream of left-wing uh, existentialism that emerged in France, hugely influenced by Nietzsche, uh, and along with Compton, that did a great deal to kind of exonerate Nietzsche's, um, you know, kind of reputation uh, in the Western world. Rightly so, again, because I don't think the Nietzsche interpretation is right. Uh, and Lesotho, for that matter, doesn't think it's right. Then you get to the kind of third interpretation of him, uh, which is not as a proto-existentialist or as the father of existentialism. You know, there's a debate whether Kierkegaard gets that title or Nietzsche, uh, but as a kind of proto-post-structuralist, proto right? And th you, everybody here should be familiar with that. You can think of, uh, I know Eric has mentioned, you know, the essay on truth and lying on a non-moral sense, uh, where he talks about truth as a moving army of metaphors or the kind of genealogical method of historical analysis pioneered in the genealogy of morals, very influenced by Foucault. Uh, and this is also a time period where his work is kind of interpreted as either being apolitical or for it is political, it's about analysis of power to try to liberate people from its strictures, right? Uh, liberate people from the strictures of coercive forms of morality. And this would include people like Deleuze, right? And and I, that's of interest to our listeners because uh, for some reason a lot of our listeners love Deleuze, so they're going to be they're going to be very resistant, I'm guessing, to to this to this kind of line of argument that that Lacerdo is offering. Exactly. You can think about like Deleuze's classic book on Nietzsche, right? Uh, where he focuses a great deal on creating uh, healthy kinds of personalities, creative personalities. That's the Nietzsche somebody like Deleuze likes, right? Same thing as the Nietzsche that somebody like Foucault likes uh, is the genealogical critique of power and morality, right? To create spaces uh, for an ethic of self-creation, as he later calls it, right? Uh, but now we're getting entering into a new phase uh, where a lot of people are revisiting this idea that maybe Nietzsche does actually hold some extremely reactionary views, uh, providing textual support for it. Uh, and one of the big instigators for this uh, was, of course, the fact that many people on the alt-right or the far-right or however you want to characterize it, drew very heavily on certain Nietzschean themes to justify their positions. Uh, and now you have people like Lacerdo and Bull and Biener coming along and saying, the Nazi take is wrong. Absolutely. But we shouldn't be engaging in this project of a hermeneutics of suspicion that tries to imply that there was nothing in his work that could lend itself to very reactionary interpretations. And Lacerdo, I'd say, is probably the most comprehensive of these critics, where he says, if you, Nietzsche did have a politics, which he did, uh, it was radically aristocratic and inegalitarian. Uh, so if you want to take his philosophy and appropriate it for these egalitarian causes, that's fine. 
but we should be very cognizant of the fact that he himself would be not just resistant to it, uh, but extremely hostile to that idea. Great. And actually, I do want to just quickly say before I move to you, Jordan, um, you know, I love you, Delizian listeners. You know, don't, 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 don't assume my little snarky <laughs> comment. You know, I just like to kid. But um, yeah, so that was that was very concise. No, but I mean, it's OK. <laughs> I'm glad that you're giving a comprehensive to set the stage for the book. But yeah, I don't know. Jordan, what are your thoughts? This book reminded me of a passage that I came across in an essay by Stanley Rosen uh, in, written in the 1980s. And the essay is called Nietzsche's Revolution. And it begins with this, which I think will just kind of will maybe restate what we've been saying. But he says, uh, Rosen says, it is a remarkable fact that Nietzsche, a self-professed decadent, nihilist, atheist, antichrist, opponent of academic philosophy, scourge of socialism, egalitarianism, and the people who espoused aristocratic political and artistic views, insisted upon a rank ordering of human beings, went as far as to advise men to carry a whip when they visit the women's quarters, <laughs> is today one of the highest authorities, if not the authority, for progressive liberals, existentialist theologians, professors, anarchist speculators, left-wing critics of the Enlightenment and bourgeois society, propounders of egalitarianism, and enemies of political and artistic elitism. He goes on and won't even list of them all. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty fucking I, comprehensive. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I thought, so anyways, I just thought that, so um, just to say that this, this topic or theme, it has, it was there before. Um, and that maybe, I, and I sometimes wonder if Rosen overstates his case there, that Nietzsche is the kind of, he says that Nietzsche is the most um, authoritative or important philosopher in the non-Marxist world. Yeah, in the eighties. Now I don't. I don't know enough about what was going on in the intellectual trends. Um, at well, can that I actually time. ask a, a question yeah. about that? Because because sure. what's what's interesting to me, I'm wondering whether this is true. Uh, you might know better, Jordan, than me, but I know like Rosen is kind of like loosely associated with the Straussians, and like it seems to me that actually maybe I mean as much as you know we've been critical in previous times on this podcast at least the Straussians. Like I know that maybe they were a bit more attuned to this reading of Nietzsche, or or is that not correct? I, I, I think earlier? I think that's I think that's definitely correct. Like the danger because of the Straussian approach, they are more attuned to this um, political dimension of Nietzsche. Because Rosen occasionally does um, have interesting remarks about Marxists. Um, So I think that it provides a lot of space for for a discussion. Um, Whereas in other cases, maybe the the, the vaguely Straussian-inspired approaches might have been uh, discounted. Um, but I was curious, Jordan, so like, what were your like general impressions of the book after like a thousand pages? Did you feel like you learned anything new or, or was it just kind of like all nothing surprised you? No, I had. Well, I was to begin with. I mean, I, I never uh, had that. I never really had that phase where I thought of Nietzsche as um, I never read him as a progressive uh, or progressively or um in fact, um, that was that wasn't, and that wasn't even his excitement for me when I first uh, started to read him. Probably because I always had certain reactionary elements in my own uh, self uh, f- from the beginning, and so, which you know, uh, to clarify, I, 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 I do find uh, Nietzsche's positions uh, disturbing, and maybe, I, I, probably, I, I didn't uh, confront when I was younger the, the full import of. Um, of the sorts of things he was saying. Like I had a professor once who said, you know, when people read Nietzsche, they always imagine that um, they always imagine that the last man is other people. Um, yeah. Right. 
And, and so, and I, and I think that's true. And I think, you know, I could not be a follower of Nietzsche, like, first of all, for very selfish reasons, which is, uh, you know, I would, according to him, I think very much belong among those who should be consigned to the, uh, uh, to destruction or, or whatever he has, whatever he would have planned. But I, I never thought of him really as, um, I never really read him as, uh, as an existentialist or a bohemian or anything like that. So this, um, with, was just giving me more source material, um, for, um, a view that was really consonant with the view that I already had. Mm. That being said, there, some of the things which were, um, so he, one of the things he does well is he does situate Nietzsche in, um, in his environment, in his milieu, so that some of the things which might appear to you, like, especially like if you're young, you've grown up in a, in a hyper kind of liberal climate. And if part of you is reacting against that or feels that there's something constraining in that, then, uh, Nietzsche can, um, like, it's interesting actually, cause I read Matt, I read your review of it and you were talking about how, uh, when you were first read Nietzsche, you were, uh, kind of intoxicated by the way that he was speaking. I mean, who the, isn't right. I mean, it's kind of like you were saying, I think Heidegger has this quality also where you read the book uh, and it almost does invite you to think of yourself as a better person, not better in the sense of improving yourself, but better really in the sense that I am privy to some kind of sacred, profound insight into existence and its problems that most people do not have uh, because they're either inauthentic uh, or because they lack the willpower to kind of see things through to the utmost, right? Uh, and that can be a very intoxicating kind of attitude to have about yourself you know, when you're 18 years old or whatever it happens to be, right? Who hasn't thought the, themselves, you know, the world is all full of phonies except for myself because obviously I'm better than that, right? It's a very fatal conceit to have and you should grow out of it. But I think we, anybody I know who's been that age usually has at least some kind of period where they go through something like that, right? And Nietzsche was one of the catalysts for that for me. And one of the things I think that's, that's interesting about, about Nietzsche as, um, in terms of what he says is you can read Nietzsche and you can become, if you're in a certain milieu, you can be excited by, uh, you know, that he proclaims the death of God or, uh, his attack on Christianity, or there can be a whole certain set of, of pieties, which his, uh, the, the attack that he, he, um, levies against them, uh, can be intoxicating for you. And, but for me, it wasn't his attack on God that was exciting. It was actually, I suppose the, 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 his attack on liberalism that excited me like that, that made like, because at that time in, um, in my life, I did feel kind of, um, I don't know. There, there were elements of, like I said, that the surrounding milieu or the surrounding, uh, culture that I, was in tension with for some reason or another. And so I, I found him sort of interesting on that score. I, that was my first, my, my first experience of impiety wasn't, I was, I, I was already very, I felt very acquainted with impiety towards Christianity or something like that. So when it was against, um, the, the, the prevailing liberal culture, that's kind of what excited or interested me. And when you say liberal um, culture, like what, what what do you mean by that? Because I think like probably interestingly, I think a lot of the the reason why like maybe some of these leftist post structuralists pick, take up Nietzsche, or at least part of the reason, is also because of his criticism of liberalism. Right, and actually, I think this actually goes more to the the, the heart of the matter. Is just is um is 
people is 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 the criticism of what is ultimately bourgeois isn't really solidly um, in the uh, belonging to the left or the right. Oh yes, I, there's something there's something really politically ambiguous, I guess, about the, about the kind of about the critique of law spirit. And I think that Nietzsche has this like profound ability to excite people who fall kind of on either side of the conventional left uh, right divide. And in fact, in, 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 it can be the case that um, yeah, people uh, who are maybe they have strong leftist principles. But everybody is uh, seduced by the image of uh, being the rebel or being chosen or, um, you know, belonging to some regiment of you know, people who are secretly kind of in the know or who spontaneously live a life that is that is um, more in tune with something radical or authentic. And so, yeah, yeah, I, I think that um, that's yeah, a right picture. Sorry, go ahead, Victor. Well, I was just—I was going to move it back to you anyway, but I, I was just going to say, like, so, so, I was thinking back to like the the sort of title, the subtitle of the book about aristocratic rebel, um, and I, and just like based on what we were talking about in terms of like these the seductive aspects of Nietzsche and how he can be, you know, appealing to both the left and the right. But I guess I wonder, like, what this sort of like term. Uh, aristocratic, like where that plays into that, because it seems to me that maybe what the left sometimes sees in Nietzsche, like broadly speaking, the left is maybe like Lacerda, someone like Lacerda would think would would argue that like oh they're kind of like thinking that everybody can have this aristocratic spirit in the sense that Nietzsche can, where like everybody can become like freed of these structures and like overcome. But like maybe the point that he's making is like, yeah, like you're you're right. You're reading what he wants correctly, but like you're kind of ignoring the parts when he says, oh, yeah, but it's only a couple people who are going to be able to do this, who are going to be able to be. Whereas like maybe the like most poor post-structuralist reading is like, oh, no, everybody can be creative. Everybody can be like self-overcoming. And it's like that's where and I wonder, Matt, if like, like what you think about that or if that seems right to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think after you read the book that there's any denying that that's the way Nietzsche actually thought. Those were his political convictions and he held to them very strongly. It might be possible to appropriate elements of his philosophical program or method and put them to uh, emancipatory purposes. And I think somebody like Foucault does that very successfully. But then one of the things that we should do is just be honest that that's taking these philosophical tools and putting them to tasks that Nietzsche himself would fundamentally disagree with uh, or even think were plausible down the line, right? Because uh, the term aristocratic rebel isn't Lacerdo's. Uh, it was a friend of Nietzsche who wrote to him uh, and said, this is the way that I would characterize your work uh, as this kind of elitist radicalism, uh, this idea that the problem with society isn't that we have elites, uh, it's that the elites aren't effective enough. Uh, and Nietzsche agreed with that interpretation. Right. In fact, he said, that's the best characterization of my work I've heard thus far. Right. So he's very hmm. emphatic about this. Uh, and I want to point out that one of the reasons why I think many people are wary uh, of endorsing this kind of position is because a lot of people on the political left really just don't spend a lot of time reading conservative literature. Right. Uh, and so the presumption, as Sheldon Morland once put it, is that conservatives are just boring stock defenders of the status quo somebody like mm. daddy for example mm -hmm. you know what oh I mean? daddy and, and just for jordan who doesn't know when we talk about daddy on this podcast we mean jordan peterson yeah oh you know, okay somebody who's just you know clean your room just a running uh, gag you know, you know clean your room 
say nice things to the cops and everything will be fine, right? Uh, when really conservatism as a defense of certain kinds of hierarchical modes of thinking can be extremely revolutionary or counter-revolutionary depending on the circumstances or radical, as Lacerda puts it. Because uh, the kind of fundamental theme that comes out of this book more strongly than anything else uh, is Nietzsche believes that the ancien regime uh, and the kind of conservative elites in Europe at his time, uh, while he was attracted to them early in the 1870s, uh, he came to believe that they just weren't tough enough to get the job done uh, of putting liberalism and socialism back in their place. And so one of the things that you needed was a much more creative, vibrant, and indeed violent and militant elite uh, that would have the capacity and the willpower to actually accomplish what the ancien regime uh, and traditional conservative elites weren't willing to do, right? Uh, and this is where the aristocratic radicalism comes in, right? What he wanted was a revolution uh, against a kind of bourgeois traditionalism uh, or just traditionalism, uh, but it was a revolution that was eventually going to put the right hierarchy in place uh, and keep everyone else at the bottom uh, and indeed create an even more hierarchical society if that was possible, right? Uh, and that's a really fascinating idea, right? It's a very, very interesting idea. Uh, precisely because it runs so contrary to what many people on the left expect when they think about conservatism or the forces of reaction. Uh, but one of the things that Lacerdo brings up by putting Nietzsche into dialogue with people like Heidegger or Schmidt uh, is that this was hardly an unusual thought at the time. Right? Many of the most creative figures on the right uh, who are extremely attractive today uh, also held to similar kind of convictions and programs. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um <clears throat> I don't know, Jordan, what do you take up when you think about this, like this, this labeling of the aristocratic rebel? I mean, I don't know, is anything, does that resonate with you? It's, I find it very, it's very interesting. You know, I was, I saw somewhere on uh, Twitter the other day, somebody um, made a post and it was something like, I'm so, so tired in leftist circles of people who, for whom it's still accept, like, oh no, not leftist circles, sorry, he said radical circles, uh, in radical circles, radical communities, I'm so tired of, of, of people where, you know, it, there's still, uh, you know, homophobia or transphobia or racism or something like that, right? And in light of a, like a book like this and other things, you know, one, um, your first reaction to that is, yeah, of course, right? Um, but then you think, well, how come radical has this meaning? How come radical has this meaning that where there is radicalism, there there is egalitarianism? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And you know, and and and, and in order to, um, well, yeah. So, so Nietzsche challenges, I think, this idea that to be radical is to be egalitarianism, mm. e egalitarian. But that's also a, a kind of disturbing thought, I think, for a lot of us. Because, um, well, then what does it mean to be, what does it mean to be radical? It, yeah. like, right? Because it suggests, like, because the, the presumption seems to be that if we're radical, that means that we are truly, well, this is one possibility, and maybe there's other answers, but one possibility is if we are being radical, then we are really thinking things down to the bottom. Right? Oh, interesting. And if we're really thinking things down to the bottom, we it will become evident to us what the egalitarian um project uh, should be or something project should be like that 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 it will become evident right and so in some ways somebody like so nietzsche would be like you imagine nietzsche over your shoulder there and saying like you are kind of it's possible that you're still presupposing this link between inquiry 
and truth and your your desired in in, in a certain political outcome and it raises this this question like i mean it kind of raises this question what is modernity um because because what i'll just add one of the things that i i thought that miserto in this book quite frequently uh you know draws attention that nietzsche's project is an anti-modern project right but um or, or in Nietzsche's own words, right? But if it's anti, but but at the same time, it seems to be that these are equated. That to be anti-modern is to be anti-egalitarian. Mm. So it raises this question: Is there something about modernity that is intrinsically egalitarian, or not? That, like, in, in, if, if modernity is not intrinsically egalitarian then what, uh, if it is not tending towards, or if it doesn't have a movement towards egalitarianism, um, kind of of its nature, as opposed to contingently, then what is it? And um, and, I, and I think in a book like this does uh, help us maybe think more about this question about just like, what is modernity and what is radicalism? And what are the link between those and our political uh that's, those are those yeah. are those are great thoughts, and actually, like I, 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 I kind of had a, a, a related thought when I was reading <clears throat> Matt's review of the book, because I think you're right that like this assumption that radicalism means, uh, you know, egalitarianism seems faulty, but but you, but it is in the ether. It's almost become like a synonym for like some sort of like leftist egalitarianism. When, but it's interesting that you said maybe it means like getting to some root, because like what my initial reaction to the word radicalism is like about novelty. It's it's like some sort of radical like opening up space for something radically new. And, and like in my and, and that was what I was thinking before you said getting to the roots because I was like, oh well like yeah, that new thing could be something really egalitarian or it could be some new hierarchy. It could be some new, you know, aristocratic dispensation, uh right? So like um but yeah. So so that's those were kind of my thoughts. But yeah, Matt, I saw, I saw that you wanted to speak, so. No, no, no. I, I think that's a really good point, right? And we're all hitting the nail here because one of the things that's really important that I thought Jordan expressed really well uh, is there is this presupposition on the part of the left that radicalism has to be associated with some egalitarian project. Uh, and this egalitarian project usually is beholden to a kind of aesthetic vision of what society is going to look like in the future. That's very consistent with what you said, Victor, right? Once we create a more equal set of conditions, people's natural talents and capacities will be able to flourish more uh, you know, promisingly, uh, and this will lead to better conditions for all, more novelty, more creativity, etc. Nietzsche also believes uh, that unleashing certain kinds of people's agency, this is the point Lacerdo makes, will bring about a more interesting and aesthetically gratifying kind of society. But agency is supposed to be allocated to a very thin elite at the top. Right. Submission is what's warranted by everyone else. And you can see why this might actually be more attractive to some people than the egalitarian project, because the egalitarian project supposes that my agency uh, and my enjoyment of agency is contingent upon my respecting your agency uh, and your rights to do what you wish as well. Right. Uh, so there's a limit to what I can do in this kind of respect, which is, you know, I have to respect your fundamental rights and dignity, etc. Uh, whereas Nietzschean agency, the purview of this elite, doesn't have that kind of limitation for the cost, right? Uh, if I decide that your life could be meaningfully used in the pursuit of my artistic project or vision, then so be it, right? My artistic project trumps your right to life, 
trumps your life to the expression of your own agency because your duty is to submit to the member of this elite, right? That has a better understanding uh, of what our aesthetic future should look like. Uh, and what's really, I think, important to note is how closely this maps the most interesting elements of reactionary thought going all the way back to somebody like Joseph de Maistre, right? Uh, because again, there's this tradition or conviction on the part of the left that a lot of conservative thinkers are always about constraining people. That's not been the way people like De Maistre or Schmidt or Heidegger uh, or even somebody like Joe Schumpeter have thought about it. The way that reactionary thought typically operates, even down to somebody like Trump, is that if you belong to the right elite, you should have more agency because you're the one who knows what to do with that agency. Uh, the problem with the egalitarians is that they presuppose that everyone should be entitled to this uh, when most people just won't know what to do with this, uh, or if they try to exercise it, they're only going to get in the way of the people who should be allowed to do what they want, uh, because they'll bring about better results, right? Yeah. <clears throat> can, I just that, can I just yeah, probe one thing about what you were saying? Mm -hmm. Because like when you were talking about sort of like this relationship between the aristocratic elite, like on a kind of a Nietzschean view and the lower classes, I f maybe I'm wrong, but it felt like you were maybe applying more agency to that situation than there would be because like wouldn't it be i don't know maybe like the thought is would it not be more a more nietzschean view that like it's not so much that there's like agency here in the sense that there's like people who are just gonna like have to submit but more just that they will because if we allow the good people to rise to the top then the others will just be there and it's not so much that there's there's less agency going on because there, it's all based on this like metaphysics of the will to power no or is that i mean oh, I, I, maybe this is like a nitpicky point but i guess in my mind it just like sounded like when you were saying it i was like is there that much like are they being forced down or will they just be down because they're like they're the herd and that, like, that's they're, a they're, very interesting question and i think this is actually an incredibly important tension within the reactionary tradition as a whole right uh because and it's a tension they've never been fully able to resolve right because there's this presupposition that most people don't really possess a yearning for agency uh, but then the question becomes, well, why is it that sometimes socialist or liberal movements, radical liberal movements, can actually motivate them to demand agency? Uh, and in these kind of circumstances, the explanation is typically that they've been corrupted uh, or they've been compelled to deviate from their natural disposition, usually by the influence of intoxicating ideas uh, and intellectuals that promulgate these kind of intoxicating egalitarian ideas. And this is where I think Nietzsche's thought is at its most original, at least according to Lacerdo. Because uh, one of the things that he points about out is that in the reactionary tradition from people like Burke, de Maistre, uh, through, you know, the German junkers, there is this presupposition that the biggest problem with Enlightenment radicalism was its attack on Christianity and the old scholastic worldview, right? Because uh, the old scholastic worldview held that everyone had its place in God's ordered universe. Uh, that included, you know, the presence at the bottom and the king at the top. And if we just go back to something like this, then... Everybody will kind of resume their proper place in the hierarchy and we won't have a problem, right? Nietzsche's kind of radicalism comes in his belief that actually the, pro the difficulty is that the radical enlightenment philosophers took in some senses the spirit of Christianity and Christian egalitarianism more seriously than the scholastics did. They really pushed it to its apex uh, through this conviction that if all people are equal before God, they should be equal within society. Uh, and they might have de-Christianized it, but the root of it is in this kind of Christian ethos of the slave morality, right? Uh, so what makes him so fascinating as a member of the reactionary tradition is he would say to somebody like the Jordan Petersons or Joseph de Maistre's or you know, National Review types, 
you think that you can combine Christianity and hierarchy, but the reality is as long as you have Christianity and this belief that all people are equal before God, you're going to have liberals and socialists emerging who will say, we need to take this ethos more seriously than you're willing to, push it to its logical conclusion and have a society where all people are treated equal. And that's precisely why in his mind, we need to break fundamentally from Christian moralism uh, and go back to something like the antiquarian worldview uh, that privileged things like nobility, or, uh, nobility superiority, cost, uh, all the kind of master moralities that we saw back then. And it's a really interesting idea. Which right? is which is not what Nietzsche would want, right? Like he, Because he, he doesn't want these to be like arbitrary, right? Like, isn't that, I mean, I don't know, like Jordan, do you think like, like it's not like, it seems like one of the things that maybe Nietzsche has in common with say like a liberal is like a distaste for what they see as like arbitrary forms of rule or like arbitrary, like, because like for Nietzsche, it's all about like the actual soul that is actually li like, like living up to the will to power and like overcoming. Like, he, I don't think he would be interested in these like kind of like symbolic, like, like hierarchies unless they're actually rooted in like, right. right? Uh, yes. No, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you that Nietzsche's, you're right. He has in common, like one of the reasons why Nietzsche's vision is modern, like, and part of this is because I, I don't think that it's, first of all, I say, I don't think that it's necessarily wrong to think of the modern as intrinsically linked towards an egalitarian hmm. mo momentum. I would say that it's, there's an egalitarian momentum. That's different than saying it's necessary, that it's intrinsically, that it's intrinsically egalitarian. Mm -hmm. But even that, I don't, I'm not, I don't know. Like for me, it's it's kind of an open, kind of an open question, and 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 it depends all on how you define modernity. Like, so like one question is, if you think of modernity in terms of a certain state of the accumulation of knowledge, then and, and if you and one has to be persuaded of this, but if you think that at, at a certain level, a certain level of accumulation of knowledge, a certain level of of civilizational experience and so on does or ought to teach us something about human equality but but that's it's not the only way of looking at what it means to be modern another another axis i suppose on which we could define the modern is in terms of and it's actually not unlinked to the idea of knowledge that's that to be modern is the more modern we are the more um, control we're able to exert on our surroundings and uh, and so forth, right? And so one of the axes on which I think it's indisputable that that Nietzsche is modern is the is this idea of um, is this idea of control um, and the ability to exert unprecedented levels of control over um our political projects and it's even it's kind of interesting because in the because uh, i i in preparation for reading this book i reread the birth of tragedy mm. and one of the things that Nietzsche asserts in the birth of tragedy um is um and, and lucerto has a really great um actually he's he spends a good deal of time talking about Nietzsche's early period when he wrote the birth of tragedy and what Nietzsche critiqued as optimism. He said Nietzsche, the early Nietzsche, um, and I suppose Nietzsche all along, was, uh, took as his target um, optimism. And optimism like, is taken in this context to mean that it's, um, 
both that it's desirable and I suppose that it's possible to create a world which um, is fundamentally paradise-like. Um, like, like, like a world where, and, and this is where the, the egalitarian dimension comes in, where everybody, where the common person, so to speak, uh, lives in a state of happiness and satisfaction and, um, and, and kind of everybody's desires are, um, are fulfilled. And, um, so, so in the birth of tragedy, you know, Nietzsche is, is challenging this, uh, in part because, um, he, he believes that it's rooted in a, in an error. And the, the error goes back to Socrates and the belief that knowledge can, like he says something like, like Socratism, what he calls Socratism is the belief that knowledge is a, how do you, how do you say, is this right? Panacea? Is that the right word? Oh, panacea. Uh, yeah. Panacea. panacea. Uh, right. That knowledge is a, pan like that basically all of the fundamental problems which pose themselves to humanity can be solved by knowledge. And this is the Socratic this is the naive Socratic view, mm. right? And sorry, I'm, I realize that I'm speaking much longer okay, than okay. I intended uh, to. I just wanted to add one thing yeah. quickly to that too, because right. I think that uh, the Socratism is one of the things that he criticizes about the French Revolution, right? Which is again really fascinating because his claim is that if you go and look at back at the works of Plato or Socrates, right, depending on how you want to distinguish them, there is this presupposition that knowledge is available to everybody. Right. And right. you could think of, uh, you know, Socratic dialogues, how he engages with everybody publicly. Or you could think of, you know, the famous Platonic dialogues where he shows how even the slave is capable of reasoning a priori about mathematics. Right. Uh, Nietzsche at some point seems to suggest that even there is the kind of natal form of this egalitarian form of modernity that you're talking about that we need to reject. Because uh, there's this presupposition that since everyone is capable of reasoning uh, and reason is available to all, there's no reason to put people in a kind of privileged hierarchy with some at the top and others at the bottom. This isn't what the Greek philosophers believed, right? But it's one of the reasons you saw them as being deficient to the kind of Homeric, Homeric poets who never had this kind of belief uh, that the masses uh, were capable of reasoning in this way. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so so, so Nietzsche, and in Lacerdo's account, Nietzsche um, is attacking Socratic optimism, which is this belief that knowledge, you know, and it's linked to the idea that when, when the people do when people act against their own interests for example uh it's because they're ignorant or you know nobody does what is bad willingly you know and basically the more we know the better will be is the socratic line right and to this nietzsche opposes the tragic worldview but what but it, it raises this question why does nietzsche oppose the the optimistic view is it because he just it because he doesn't like it or does he also believe that there is something wrong with it in terms of like that it itself is false and i think at least nietzsche does say that it is false knowledge will not actually solve all of the problems um that we have and but what happens is uh in the his in the course of the development of western culture the ideal of knowledge becomes more and more um, prioritized and saturates more and more levels of the populace till you get to the point where even people who don't undertake study of things, just, you know, the common peasants mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, they also 
in the course of the history of the development of Western culture, because it keeps prizing knowledge, they eventually themselves also kind of come to be fundamentally optimistic about where knowledge is taking us as a whole. Mm. And, um, and because knowledge is linked, and this is, this is just the point that I wanted to get to. Nietzsche says that um, Socratic optimism produces this delusion that we have limitless power. Hmm. That we will have limitless power over our um, over our reality, and therefore, you know, and therefore, it will be possible to kind of create a world where I suppose the masses and the elite can both be satisfied, hmm. right? Whereas the, the the Nietzschean position is that you can is in a way they they can never be reconciled the two of them, but the Socratic maybe the Socratic delusion is is uh, that they that they can be but but what i wanted to say is though is that that all of that notwithstanding so on the one hand nietzsche has this this critique of knowledge as as power knowledge is limitless power that will solve our fundamental problems but on the other hand i think that you can't come away from nietzsche without without concluding that he is very um very much wrapped up in a fantasy or an idea of, of an unprecedented level of power over our um, common human future. Hmm. And, and, I, and I think that's something which does not occur. You, don't, you never read in Plato or Aristotle or something like that, like the idea of making one common goal for all of humanity. But, but Nietzsche says through Zarathustra and others, right, that the the, the question that like w w something in Zarathustra, like a thousand and one goals, there's been a thousand and one goals because there's been a thousand and one peoples, but never has it come up the question, what is the goal of humanity mm. as such, right? So this, this idea that like, it, that in part of the reason why, like, I think Nietzsche has such grand ideas is because he's come to think like we as a, like, there has to be a decision about humanity as a whole. And that also means like, we have to, we have to have some sort of plan for managing humanity as a whole. And we need to find some kind of goal, which humanity as a whole has. And that presupposes the ability to, um, to have power over humanity as a whole. Yeah. And in that, in that, I think he's he's very he's very modern, and um, it you know even in ways that flirt with what he criticized. In well, it's interesting because that that seems like you're, you're kind of a, putting your finger maybe on a tension, which maybe we won't be able to explore. But like uh, you know, between knowledge and power, because like if if like because if he's critical that like knowledge will solve things, but he also wants to like exert this kind of power. Uh, that humanity can have a unified goal. It's like, how do you expect to do that without knowledge? Like, where is there a disconnect between like the like the knowledge and the, and the power that's exerted? It's, I mean, it's anyway. That's a side thing. I know, Matt, you've been wanting to get in here for a while, so so jump in. Well, no, no, because I, I would frame it in a slightly different way. I agree with everything that Jordan said, right? And I think this testifies to the kind of richness of Nietzsche's work, as disturbing as it happens to be. Uh, but I think that the way that he frames optimism is slightly different, right? Uh, the optimism isn't just uh, the philosopher's optimism that things are going to get better. Uh, the problem with this kind of optimism is when it seeps into the mind of Joe the plumber, uh, who starts to think that he is ever going to be intelligent enough or capable enough to deserve to have some kind of say in the order of things, right? Uh, and the kind of genealogy that Lacerdo traces Nietzsche is making is that this kind of Socratic or Platonic impulse 
becomes universalized through Christianity and this expectation that the kingdom of God is one day going to belong to everyone, uh, in particular the poor, the meek, the suffering, the uneducated, all the classes that the Romans uh, and the aristocrats left behind. Uh, and while a lot of the metaphysical trappings of that disappear over the course uh, of secularization, the millenarian goal of Christianity to achieve this kind of utopian society and the optimistic impression that that gives doesn't disappear with the Enlightenment, right? If anything, it becomes radicalized uh, because there's expectation that we're not going to achieve that in the next life, which still has a kind of tragic contour to it, right? Uh, we're going to achieve that in the here and now, you know? Uh, and this is most explicitly manifested uh, with socialism, right? As he calls it once, uh, Christianity with the soul of Rousseau, uh, or Christianity with the residue of Rousseau, excuse me, and the world of power, right? Uh, and what's remarkable about this kind of genealogical story he tells is how expansive it is and how creative uh, its understanding of these interlinkings are. Uh, because no one I can think of in the reactionary tradition to this day uh, is really audacious enough to say the problem with these egalitarian movements isn't that there's some kind of break from the Platonic or Christian tradition. Uh, it's that they are the continuity of that tradition in the here and now, right? Uh, you don't usually see conservatives saying something like that or reactionaries, right? Uh, and what Nietzsche, Nietzsche, thoroughly modern and interesting in this way, as Jordan put it, uh, is precisely his argument that if you're going to try to have an aristocratic radicalism, you can't try to settle it on these traditionalist or theological arguments because it's always going to cede too much ground to these concedes. We need to either go further back for insight uh, to the kind of pre-Socratics, uh, or we need to have the courage to invent new forms uh, of aristocratic radicalism now, right? Uh, that owe very little uh, to this Judeo-Christian heritage uh, and its contemporary Enlightenment forms. And wasn't uh, Lacerdo uh, brings up uh, in some place that Nietzsche was actively contemplating means by which the commercial class could somehow be incorporated into the aristocratic class, right? Because he, under, he understood that it wasn't possible to have a, a reversion to a pre-industrial, pre-capitalist society, but he found that the, 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 the commercial class was crude, vulgar, um, had none of the, um, had nothing which, you know, the, the real marks of an aristocracy besides possibly the accumulation, steady accumulation of power. So, um, yeah, and I think, and I think this touches actually because I don't, I, know, I don't know if I ever, I really quite answered your earlier question. Victor was about like, what, what is the character of this aristocratic class mm. that that Nietzsche would want, and how does it differ from the aristocratic classes of, um, you know, uh, previous ages, right? And in what you said, I think was that, you know, doesn't he have this in common with? Um, other more modern with things with liberals is that you kind of like that that you um you want to get rid of arbitrariness was the you word get, you, yes you want to get rid of arbitrariness yeah and so that nietzsche wanted the pe people to be at the top the people who were worthy of being at the top right and you know in some ways it kind of recalls the um in in Lacerdo even notes right that that nietzsche cites uh plato's republic approvingly um one, because of its hierarchical structure and because of, you know, because of it places a philosopher um, at the top. Um, but, and, and he doesn't say this, but I would think that uh, the, the mechanism by the sorting mechanism, right? Like, a play, like 
Plato realizes that, well, there's, there's, there's something called chance, right? And that people being, people are being, uh, he tries to distinguish between different, uh, qualities of soul, so to speak, right? Like there's, like there's, uh, the souls made of like lead and souls made of silver, right? How do we, how do we sift through them? And so they have to create different kinds of games and competitions to be able to sift through which souls like so you might be born into the laboring class in the republic but if the mechanism works that should be detected and then you should be carried over up into the um into the guardian class right where maybe mm-hmm. you can have the education maybe and then maybe even become a philosopher and a philosopher ruler or something like that well i want to say the certo does actually trace this kind of shifting viewpoint uh on Nietzsche's part about who he thinks the proper aristocracy is going to be. And he devotes a lot of time to it in the book. And I think it's really telling because it helps not only to periodize Nietzsche, but see how his thinking about this became more radicalized and more reactionary over time, uh, if that's possible, right? Uh, Simultaneously. Uh, Because the kind of initial impression that one gets from Lacerda's reading of the birth of tragedy and the early friendship with Wagner, right, is that Nietzsche was a very innovative German nationalist initially. And in part, he was attracted to German nationalism because he saw it as a kind of antidote to French uh, liberal and revolutionary ideas, right? Liberté, égalité, solidarité. And the Soto's reading is that's one of the reasons why Nietzsche participated in the Franco-Prussian War, right? He saw the defeat of Napoleon III uh, and the kind of birth of the German Empire as a moment of response uh, and victory uh, over the forces of egalitarian liberalism uh, and, you know, democracy. Whether that's a good interpretation of Napoleon III uh, on Nietzsche's part, we'll put aside, right? Uh, But the kind of second period that Lacerdo traces is, again, this more liberal period uh, where he seemed to have become convinced that German nationalists, uh, whether Wagner uh, or the Kaiser or others, weren't up to the job of creating the kind of fluid, dynamic, vigorous aristocracy uh, and aristocratic ethic that you were talking about, right? Uh, And he becomes very attracted to kind of uh, a right-wing liberalism Uh, That holds that the hierarchy should be much more open. Uh, It should allow the best to rise to the top. There should be a kind of free expression of ideas, at least amongst those uh, who deserve uh, to have their ideas freely expressed, right? Uh, And that'll filter the garbage out, as it were. Uh, But even in this time period, he points out that Nietzsche's liberalism is always constrained uh, to the noble few, right? The people who deserve these kinds of agency, not to the majority, uh, which makes them very different... um, even then somebody like Kant, right, who's consistently criticized uh, for, consistently criticizes. Doesn't make him different, by the way, than Locke, though, uh, interestingly enough, who Lacerda compares him to a lot. And then there's this third period where he seems to be convinced that a kind of right-wing liberalism, uh, an attitude of free spirits, isn't enough still, because liberalism itself is too beholden to elements of this Christian ethic. Uh, And there we get a bit of ambiguity. I think you're right, Jordan, where it's not exactly clear what the next thing he was going to pin his hopes on were. It seems to me that as Nietzsche, in his last phase, and I think that I understood Misurdo to be saying this as well, um, Nietzsche becomes progressively more conciliatory towards what one might call the, the, the barbarian, right? Whereas in the early Nietzsche, like barbarianism is... Um, still a negative word or i mean it's not that uh i mean i suppose in some sense it was all it was already there maybe we'll all skip trying to compare the 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 different faces of nietzsche but there's this really interesting um passage in beyond good and evil where 
he talks about um, there has never been a significant advance in uh, in development of the human type um, or of a human society that didn't originate with a barbarian class conquering another class. And there's this really kind of complex point that he's trying to make, and I, I hope that I, I can make it in a way that uh, is both intelligible and um, and fair to what he's to what he's saying, because it's it's because it's a, it's a disturbing sort of assertion that um, he says in this passage, like the, the, the kind of the purpose is to have an aristocracy that is refined, uh, full of people who are individuals, um, and uh, and he has this concept of the individual as somebody who is rare. Right. So if you think of these characteristics, rare, unique, refined, capability of capable of many different degrees of nuance in your evaluation, like all of these things are not necessarily qualities that indicate uh, strength. Like, I mean, like you can be unique, you can be rare, you can, you can even have like the, people who are extraordinarily sensitive can have sublime perception and a sublime capability of distinguishing degrees of differences and things right so like so so, so uh, many of the characteristics which make up Nietzsche's ideal type are not intrinsically of themselves connected to any kind of strength and they might even be qualities that more often than not go with weakness like if you have if you think like to be extraordinarily sensitive can make you a more nuanced and subtle thinker, but that could be linked with being overwhelmed by stimuli and, and, and you know, in fact, not being strong uh, by a certain metric. I want to frame it a somewhat different way, because I think one of the problems is when we focus exclusively on what kind of aristocracy would be the one that Nietzsche wants, uh, we ignore one of the kind of major themes that the book brings up. Uh, two things, actually, I should say. One of which is the extraordinary amount of time Nietzsche spends talking about what constitutes the proper servile class, right? Uh, so Lacerda takes a great deal of time thumbing through uh, the Twilight of the Idols. One passage where he talks that he talks about a great deal uh, is Nietzsche's consistent criticisms of universal education. Um, so I'll just read the passage from Twilight of the Idols because I brought it up. Uh, where he says, the worker was qualified for military service, granted the right to organize and vote. Is it any wonder that the worker today experiences his own existence as disgressing, morally speaking, as an injustice? But what is wanted? I ask once more, if one wants an end, one must also want the means. If one wants slaves, then one is a fool if one educates them to be masters, right? And that sort of points out, he's very blatant here, that the, part of the problem is if you try to teach the people to be educated and to think that they're entitled to something, they're going to make those kinds of demands. You need to train them to be slaves if you want to be the kind of proper aristocratic caste, right? Uh, so one of the problems, again, with uh, the early Nietzsche's nationalism uh, was this Kaiserite policy of trying to educate the working class so they'd be more competitive. Nietzsche wanted to have none of that later on, right? Uh, and the other thing that I think is really important to raise isn't just that Nietzsche is fixated not just on what constitutes the elite, but how to create the right kind of servile classes, uh, but is how his fixation on difference, which I think is a really interesting point in the book, uh, might sound at first like a kind of proto-post-structuralism in the sense that he really is very focused on the differences between people, differences between cultures, uh, and fixates on them in a way that liberal universalism did not, where it tried to whitewash all this away. 
Uh, but this is, I think, where Nietzsche is actually, in some senses, more insightful or at least more disturbing than the post-structuralist, because there was always this assumption in post-structuralism that a knowledge of human differences is going to make us more empathetic and hence more egalitarian, right? I'll understand your cultural difference to use, you know, the kind of Zizekian point, you know, I'll see you as who you truly are and I'll recognize that I've walked a mile in your shoes and then I'll care about you and I'll grant you rights and entitlements. And Nietzsche's arguments is that actually why, if you're going to be attentive to differences, should you not be attentive to the most fundamental difference of all, which is the differences in rank between people. And this notion that the most fundamental difference is that some people just aren't worked really much. They're stupid, boring, ignorant, cow-like humans. Uh, and some people are just in many ways infinitely better than that. They're robust, free-spirited kinds. That's the fundamental difference between people and between cultures. And so if you want to focus on human difference, you should fixate on that. Uh, and it's interesting that none of the post-structuralist thinkers ever really tackle, to my knowledge at least, this element of difference head on, probably because it's highly problematic. And it deflates what I would say is the kind of crypto-Kantian underpinning to a lot of their work, which is this assumption that knowledge of difference is just going to make us more egalitarian, more understanding, uh, more receptive to different modes of being uh, and accepting them all at once. Whereas Nietzsche's point is, once you realize the differences between human beings, you start to realize that some are trash and a very few are gold, and we should stop fixating on the trash and focus on the gold, which is not something that many of us, I think, find appealing. I think it's monstrous, right? But it is a very provocative idea. Yeah, no, and and I agree, and and I, and I, it's it is it's it is a disturbing component of his whole project that if we are going to that he he sees um, if we're if we're going to have this project of creating um, he he sees the kind of human being that he wants to create can't be created unless many are sacrificed. Right. And, you know, and, and, actually, and that's even maybe even a tension in his thought. Right. On the one hand, he wants to emphasize that, like you said, there are these there are these uh, differences. Right. And I think I even actually wrote something like down with I, I think speaking to your point, Matt, was about this, um, that the higher man, right. This sort of says that Nietzsche is the higher man as, quote, other Right and incommensurable. That difference that, that these the different types of people are actually incommensurable. And you're right. That is that's that's a really important point that you hear in I guess post structural philosophy today. And even you know I, I studied the Emmanuel Levinas uh, for a while, um, uh, who's a very interesting thinker as well. Yeah, very good. And this, very right, good reference. Yeah. Right. And this idea of the you know the otherness of the other, and and there's just an incommensurability. There is no adequation between me. And the other, and for for Nietzsche, that is that is in a way true as well. But you're but you're right that for him, incommensurability doesn't redound to equality, and it's worth asking why. And we have to ask ourselves why ought why ought difference per se lead to an egalitarian um, conclusion, right? Exactly. Um, right? Why shouldn't I say there are many different cultures, they exist in many different forms, there are many different kinds of individuals, and most of them aren't worth very much and only a few are, you know, uh, most things are rocks, a few things are gold, you aim for the gold and the rest gets thrown in the heap, right? That, that seems to me to be the, a lot of the efforts of what he's saying when it comes to this question of difference, which again, as you think you pointed out very brilliantly, hugely different than the kind of Levinasian 
ethic that underpins a lot of, like, say, for instance, Derridian post-structuralism when it comes to things like difference, right? That if I recognize the difference in you, I'm really respecting your individuality and I'm going to come to care more about you as an individual, right? And so, but at, and at the same time, Nietzsche seems to sometimes suggest that these, these people of a higher rank, like that they need, like that they need to be tended to, right? And, and that, and that's one of the ways in which, in which, like, you know, uh, Nietzsche spends a lot of time trying to draw attention to all of the ways in which different aspects of reality are actually um, constructed through human activity. And I guess, you know, and I guess maybe it's a very thin difference, but it is a difference. Maybe he, he believes that these superior types, they exist no matter what we do, uh, no matter how we arrange society. And I suppose that's in Zarathustra, right? Anybody who thinks differently goes into the madhouse. I want to frame it in a somewhat different way, though. And Victor, I really am curious to hear your thoughts about this, because this is the last chapter of the book, which is really fascinating to me. Uh, because he takes on the question of the relationship of Nietzsche to post-structuralism and post-structuralist politics. Uh, and he says, this is the interesting thing, right? The presumption of post-structuralist was universalism was inherently tyrannical because uh, it had this imperial quality to it. So criticizing universalism made space for a kind of egalitarian politics of human freedom that wasn't available before because uh, it allowed people to will their own kind of identities and value systems uh, into being. Right. Uh, but Lacerdo's kind of characterization of Nietzsche's philosophy in a nutshell and its relationship to this is Nietzsche says, actually, the problem with universalism is universalism is inherently egalitarian because it presupposes that you have to treat people the same way. Uh, and it's only when you have perspectivism and everything becomes just about aesthetic ruminations that you can truly see the higher caliber people come to the fore. Uh, because when we make aesthetic judgments, what we're saying is some things are more refined beautiful and interesting than others. And I don't have to be accountable to you if you don't understand that, uh, because you just lack the refinement and taste that I do, right? Uh, that seems to be Lacerdo's take to this. Uh, so if anything, he seems to be saying that it's only when you have these kind of post-structuralist mentalities that emerge that difference is supposed to be at the core uh, of human society, that you're going to start to find really aristocratic attitudes emerge, uh, since there's no way of making plain a set of values that all people can appreciate. And so everything becomes subject to taste uh, and our sense of who has good taste and who doesn't. Uh, and DeSoto also points out that this is the way that Nietzsche typically argued with his political opponents. You very rarely see him dissect Immanuel Kant or dissect Saint-Simon or dissect Rousseau. Uh, his usual denunciation of them is, I'm not even going to bother arguing against you because you don't argue with somebody who holds to bad, tasteless values like the herd would hold to. Uh, what I'm instead going to do is point out how ugly and ungainly and how sick a lot of your values are. Or he'll just, make, he'll just make vague, like, funny little snarky comments about, like, the English. And yeah. usually I, I think he's talking about the utilitarians often or, like, like you know, the John Stuart Mills and the, and the Benthams and stuff. Yeah, or he even just say, the problem with your value system is it's so boring, right? Why would you want a boring system, right? Uh, and I think this also has bearing on his way he would have appreciated post-structuralist politics, uh, because there's always this presupposition in post-structuralism and post-modernism that the reason why it is that we don't see interesting individualistic people coming in and willing their own value systems is, you know, choose your label, you know, hegemony, discourse, discipline, control. Uh, Nietzsche would say the reason that you don't see this happening is people are fundamentally different, even external to the society that they have. 
Uh, and some people are just going to be interesting and will creative and interesting value systems into being. And some people, the most people just will not. Uh, and his comment to all the Foucaults of the world is, why can't you just accept this? Why do you presuppose that there are certain social determinants that are primarily the basis for so many people just being ignorant buffoons, uh, when really that's just the iron law of nature? Well, I mean, wouldn't Nietzsche go farther and say it's not just sociological, but it's also there might just be like biological or natural differences that like, you know, like, <clears throat> like that, that are not, you know, subject to whatever, like, because I think isn't that because isn't like, I mean, this kind of brings that there's maybe like the, uh, this kind of like metaphysical difference or something between like the egalitarian and the and the non egalitarian where it's like, uh, you know, I think the egalitarian premise of like the post structuralist Nietzscheans is like, depends on this idea that like ever all these social structures that lead to inequality are contingent and like could be different right and like it's just about like it's those things whereas like i think the more like nietzschean i guess like truer to nietzsche would be like no no people just are that way and there's nothing we can do about it like there's just going to be differences and some people are going to be better and it's going to be only the few who are going to be like really the ones worth uh anything <laughs> well i, I think he he varies back and forth because, uh, you know, Nietzsche was a moody guy, as we all fucking know, right? Mm -hmm. When his girlfriend dumped him, he had all those nasty things to say about What girlfriend? Women. There's no girlfriend. Well, you know, like, yeah, his flirt, flirt. But anyway, it, it seems to me that what his makes friend Nietzsche... Zone. His friend zone. His friend situation. zone situation. Yeah, situation, yeah. With, what was her name again? Uh, Lou Salome. Lou Salome. Yeah, yeah, Lou yeah. Salome. Yeah, Salome, yeah. Um, but I mean, what, what seems to be interesting about him is at some points he actually worries that the kind of socialist and liberal project will be achieved, that it is possible to actually create this kind of environment. And what's interesting is it's going to be exactly what Foucault and Deleuze, etc., all dread, uh, which is that this leveling impact is going to mean all people are going to be the same. The herd mentality is going to rise to the fore. And what we're going to see is crass values at the epicenter of our civilization. Right, mass society. Because that's society. Where the average person is. Exactly, right? Uh, and... He says it might be possible to actually achieve this. In fact, he sometimes seems to worry that that's the direction that we're going in. And his argument is very much in a kind of pro-structuralist line. We need a reassertion of difference. But the most important reassertion of difference is, again, this difference in the quality of human beings predicated on their ability to create interesting, novel, and exciting values, uh, which will never and can never be the mass, right? You know, what you're saying is making me think of some stuff I've been encountering in my own research because I've been reading a lot of the post-structuralist sort of like like egalitarian radical Democrats. And like, I don't know. Oh, I was still, the most exciting people too. I right? still <laughs> haven't been able to, but I'm having this sort of like broader insight into things. And like, I don't know about you guys, but like, I like sometimes I'll like capture a thread and like I'm pulling at it. So it's not fully articulated yet, but I'm kind of, but basically like the claim I'm starting to come to is that actually like the these post-structuralists or a lot of a lot of like what we might broadly associate with sort of like post-structural egalitarians i mean it's bigger than that uh, and that's like a contestable term but but like in general that like that overall thrust like i think that like at the core is like an unacknowledged ar aristocratic attitude among them and like what well, well, yeah. the reason i think that is because like often the solutions that they have for things are like so, for example, the radical Democrats are like, you know, we need to we can get rid of these like, you know, these structures, these institutions that are just like pushing us into this mass society and like this kind of fake democratic because it's like erasing difference. Right. Again, difference comes up for them. Like we need to let the difference come out and like combat itself. But we also need to make sure that this political order, these political contests don't devolve into like these antagonisms that are like disorder. But like the problem I'm kind of looking at in my research is like well how do you do that that they don't really talk about like 
how to have these like political contests that like proceed where like difference is really acknowledged, but they don't devolve into like violence and instability. And like often the answer that they all have is to like almost what what I'm seeing as like a sort of civic virtuous attitude or like a kind of intellectual activity where you kind of like realize that like everybody else's belief systems are contingent and you're contingent. And it's like this kind of mental acrobatics. It's almost like learning these post-structuralist insights about like the aporia. It's kind of like you have to develop these attitudes and like dwell in this kind of like, you know, undecidability. And I guess like, and I even noticed this, I don't know if you guys heard about this book that came out. I was reading a review about it, the, the right to sex by like, oh, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's, she's this feminist author who's like, kind of like trying to dwell in this like uncomfortable space between like, you know, more conservative ideas of sexuality and like her solution again is to like dwell in this, like, you know, this contingency in this weird space. And like, I don't know, this isn't really like well articulated yet, but like, I guess I kind of think that like the ability to do that, like requires like quite a bit of effort like to, to come to that realization to like understand i mean i don't know we all studied philosophy for a long time to like have those insights to know even what that means it's difficult um and like i guess like sometimes it seems like they just like assume anybody can have those insights and that's going to solve our societal problems just like get in touch with this but i guess like i think it implies a kind of i don't know this is like maybe this is like half-baked but like i think it like requires like quite a, like more effort than they think and and i think it it, it implies that like n- knowing that n- having those insights is better but because i think only a few people can actually have those insights in their proper way it implies an aristocracy without knowing it because it's like only these like knowledge holders can figure out these post-structuralist insights but they kind of like assume anybody can um and they don't really think about like the difficulty i don't know that i don't know if that makes sense but so just to de- a Victor's point, I think they are absolutely right that the kind of underpinning ethos uh, or disposition in a lot of post-structuralist politics uh, is this idea of what Lacerda calls, uh, I'll just go with him because, you know, we're, yeah, we're about talking him, about him, uh, democratic individualism. Uh, and you can see this with this idea of rhizomatic thinking uh, that we mm. talked about a little while ago as well, right? That more democracy uh, is going to breed more interesting kinds of individualism because it creates a space for difference uh, to flourish uh, and ultimately it's going to create a more intriguing society. Uh, and what's interesting about this is that I do think a lot of post-structuralists are attracted to this uh, because they are egalitarians in a certain sense, but they also just think, frankly, to go to your point, that's going to be a more interesting society uh, because society as it is right now is just really boring, right? And we want one that's more dynamic, more intriguing, uh, more characterized by big novelty, uh, novelty forms of novelty emerging, right? Uh, and a lot of this is inspired by a kind of Nietzschean disposition uh, but to go back to Lacerdo's kind of point, I think you would say that Lis- Nietzsche would actually say democratic society, rhizomatic thinking is exactly the problem, right? Uh, we have too much horizontal forms of organization right now. This presupposition that everyone should be allowed to contribute uh, is the big reason why we see things like crass value systems emerging. And so what we need is a reassertion of much more horizontal forms. Uh, of organizing society if you're going to actually have interesting kinds of politics and interesting kinds of projects emerge. Because if you have rhizomatic or democratic society, what you're going to have is not individualism. Uh, it's you're going to have a lot of people watching reality TV at night uh, and eventually electing reality TV type presidents, right? Um, yeah, there's a kind of gesture for you, right? Yeah. Uh, and I personally don't think that he's right about that. I do actually believe that a kind of democratic individualism is correct. But I do think that as leftists, we do have to acknowledge that 
sometimes if we create the material conditions for everyone to flourish, they're not just going to necessarily commit that to some grand project of self-expression. A lot of people are going to commit themselves to living reasonably comfortable lives uh, that are comparatively sedentary. And we have to accept that that's absolutely fine because uh, what's important isn't creating an interesting society. It's creating a just society where everybody's able to live a life of flourishing. Uh, and the two, I think, can go together, but they're not necessarily going to in all instances. And I'm content with that personally. Uh, but I don't think a lot of kind of post-structuralist democratic individualists are. To them, the excitement and the kind of hyper-novelty is the big appeal of this. And mm. if they don't get it, I think they're going to be really disappointed. In all instances, they're going to be disappointed. Yeah, and I'll just quickly respond before, but like, yeah, and I think that's right. And and uh, I do think that there's kind of a fetishization of, uh, of kind of like novelty on the post-structuralist left a little bit, uh, like as we've sort of talked about in on previous episodes. And um yeah. And I, I mean, for me, like a lot of my influence is coming from like, I'm really interested in subjectivity, the question of subjectivity and like Mary Laponte and phenomenology and psychoanalysis. And I guess like my understanding of human subjectivity from those makes me think that that like having those insights, those these novel insights, this rhizomatic thinking, having it like be in like most people is just doesn't make sense to me. I think it's like actually takes a lot of effort for people to come to those kinds of insights. And I don't think it's a realistic expectation that we can have a social transformation where everyone becomes like a rhizomatic thinker or something like that. I mean, certainly not enough people to like actually have the kind of transformation that they want, or at least I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very big skeptic about that uh, to a certain extent. So I, and I just think that like by like, I think that they, they, they are unwilling, unknowingly becoming a kind of aristocrat because they kind of like look down sometimes unknowingly on people who like aren't thinking that way and, and, and or something or they'll blame like, I don't know, social structures or like capitalism on people like not thinking that way. And I, I don't know. I think that's all I'm, I'm skeptical about all that. Yeah, I agree. I'm just going to say this last thing. Uh, my I'm a committed. I'm a committed enough liberal socialist to say that if we create the material conditions for your flourishing and you decide you want to smoke weed, masturbate, uh, and play League of Legends all day and not engage in any higher life project than that, all fucking power to you. You yeah, know what I, I mean? Uh, I will get you a subscription for League of Legends myself. Okay. <laughs> if you decide you want to commit yourself to a more interesting project than that, I think many people will, but I absolutely do not require it uh, to hold to my political convictions. Yeah, I agree with that. Anyway. That's why. <laughs> Jordan, what do you think? What, what, what are your some well, final thoughts well, about the book? Yeah, and you don't well, have to respond to all that nonsense we were talking about, but um, what do you got? Well, no, I mean, I, I, I think in some ways this what you're talking about really gets to the heart of the question because I think we're getting you're getting onto the I think the basic tension, which is Nietzsche's obsession, and that's the the tension between the many and uh, and the few, right? Plato had the one and the many, Nietzsche has the many and the few, <laughs> I think. And, um, you know, and it, it, I, I guess I, re I do regard it as a worthy question, like, um, like you were just saying now, right? Like it's, um, what's more important is that people flourish than that some people find society interesting. But what if some people can't flourish unless they find society interesting? And then what grounds do they have to believe in the idea of justice that you're preaching? So, so I, those are, you know, and, um, and what you said earlier, like, Victor, like, um, okay, so Marx, you know, even Marx seemed to imagine a world where we could read Kant in the evening. Right. And uh, so I don't have an answer for this problem, but I think that it, that it's, 
and I think that Nietzsche is extreme, and uh, and I don't follow him on it. Um, but um, in, I, I personally don't think that that uh, the question of the 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 qual like. I guess it, it also, we have to ask, what do we mean by flourishing as well? Like this, I, and when we call it something interesting, right? When we talk about society being interesting, like that can be a way of uh, trivializing it. And we have to, we'd have to be more precise about what we mean. And we'd have to be more precise about what it means for people to be uh, dissatisfied with that. But I guess my response to what you're saying is I don't necessarily regard it as by itself a flaw for somebody to have aristocratic sentiments of, of a crime, right? The question is about integrating those sentiments in with justice, but that's also what is justice. And so I don't have an answer to, to any of no, it. I just, I just, but I think that I think that you guys touch on. We a expect whole you bunch to solve of, all of, our problems yeah. today, Jordan. That's why we brought you in. Every <laughs> I, every solution you need to come up with it. But I think that you, your your inter, your exchange just now touched on a, a bunch of like of live questions about like you know and things about which it doesn't. Unfortunately, we maybe were more naive in the past that there was a simple answer to. I mean, we're not even in the position to satisfy. It's not even obvious we're in the position to satisfy everybody on the basically material level. I mean, maybe theoretically it's possible, but like we're not. It doesn't seem that we're able to actually organize. <laughs> like it doesn't actually seem practically possible at the moment. So we might be so far from getting, might be so ahead of ourselves. But, yeah. You know, but I think that Nietzsche was Nietzsche. You know, in his privilege and. Uh, had this question, like, right, like about um, what about the satisfaction of the people who don't fit in? <laughs> and yeah. if you word if you word it that way, it's it's very acceptable still to uh, even the most left wing thinkers, right? So uh, it's yeah. strange. It's strange how that question can become a radically right wing question, and mm -hmm. that's the and that's the fascination of Nietzsche, I think. And I think and I think Lacerda did a good job of of. Um, honing in on all of these these ultimately barbaric and, and awful things that Nietzsche said, but in a way that wasn't like this. Um, he, he doesn't... He doesn't just sit there and castigate Nietzsche and say this is an awful person. He even at some point says somewhere like, "If we're going to save Nietzsche, I don't know what he meant, but like, you know, like he <laughs> meant like, if we're going to have the proper evaluation of him, we have to be honest about this political dimension." But he doesn't. He doesn't. Um, I don't know. He leaves a lot. He leaves a lot of work for us to do mm -hmm. in terms of what is the value of this legacy. I think, and and I think that's a strength of the book that it's just it's very kind of. A cold. This is what he said. Look at it yourself, and you know, more conversations to be had later. Well, that's a well, great. That's a great point to end on. Yeah. I think. And uh, great book. You know, lots it. of lots of um, lots of thoughts, lots of puzzles remaining, and and hopefully we can have you back on. And I'll, I'll mention too, like you know, obviously listeners, check out the Lacerdo book. We'll we'll put a link uh, in the description, and I think uh, I'll also mention that. One of the reasons we're kind of doing this is because Matt uh, has been working on this edited volume too. Another one of his edited volumes now <laughs> coming out this time on Nietzsche as an aristocratic thinker. Is that right? Or his critiques of liberalism and socialism? Was that the angle? Yeah, we're kind of looking at Nietzsche's politics. Uh, Jordan's contributing an essay. Exactly. So, so if you're that's interested what, yeah. in more uh, pieces by him, uh, take a look at that. Well, um, whenever it comes out, uh, like you know, who, that it'll be a while away. And I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure since you know we. We'll use the podcast to per to promote it at some point. So at, at the very least, I'm sure Jordan will come back on when we can do do a discussion about like the the edited volume as well. But but hopefully sooner than that. So uh, thanks everyone, and that was that was a good discussion. 
Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it.